So General Stanley, what a conversation. So many things to take away. The first thing that resonated with me were his remarks around this image we have of what excellence looks like and how we put people on pedestals based on superficial observations. It's so, so easy to overestimate others and to underestimate ourselves. I think this stems from what I refer to as the movie version of success, uh, whether it's DiCaprio collecting his Oscars, Serena winning a 23rd Grand Slam, or Elon launching his 27-engine Falcon Heavy rocket into space, strapped with a cherry red Tesla Roadster. This is kind of how we see elite performance. The actor receiving their Oscar, the athlete on the podium, or the CEO at the product launch. Not many of us grow up in or around excellence or truly elite performance. We only see excellence when the expert's finished. And this is a fraction of what excellence really entails. Like an iceberg, the part of excellence that's visible is smaller and less significant. And it's the bits we can't see, the bits beneath the surface that make the difference. And that's the key problem. It makes us susceptible to two things. And General McChrystal touched on this. One is that we kind of default that that's uh, all talent, genetics, and we reluctantly accept our mediocrity. This is just where we sit. Or due to the fact we've created this sort of them and us gap, we can't see a clear path to the top. And because of this, some of us don't even bother to try. The fact is, it takes one breakthrough for you to perceive the possibility of the next. And this means that so many of us stay blind to the enormous potential that uh, basically remains dormant within us. When your perceptions of potential are low, the quality and quantity of the action you take is proportionately low. And therefore, the quality of the results you produce is also low. And guess what? This reinforces that initial belief of low potential. The opposite is true when we have high perceptions of potential. We engage in high quality, high quantity action, and this inevitably impacts the quality of the results we produce. Guess what now? This reinforces or even expands our perceptions of potential. And this is in effect how we grow confidence. One of the first things I look at with any individual or team I'm working with is getting a firm understanding of their perceptions of potential for this exact reason. And you'll often find very clear links between their perceptions of potential and their level of achievement. This is a key subject we're going to explore through season one of this podcast. And in terms of the iceberg analogy, that is fundamentally what this podcast is about, revealing the principles beneath the surface of the iceberg, the proven principles that maximize your potential to excel. We have to work smarter, not harder, if we really want to excel. The first one for me, um, just an absolute fundamental, walk the walk. You have to be what you want people to be. The message here is that if you want everyone else to bring the intensity, enthusiasm, dedication, and commitment, guess what? You go first. You don't just push people towards excellence. You must actively demonstrate the behaviors that will take you all there as a collective. You need to lead by example, bringing the energy, following through on what you say, following the rules you set, giving trust and listening. Number two, make people think for themselves. I'm not gonna decide, that's your job. This is such a crucial talent development principle. Advanced skills cannot be taught. They must be discovered. You need to swap, recite, repeat, regurgitate, for think, do, and produce. 
when you're fed the answers, there are fewer breakthrough moments that cement the learning in your brain. Now, your coach can explain it to you, but they can't understand it for you. When you have to summon your own solutions, the practice literally changes you. And this moves us from creating one-dimensional robots who can't think for themselves to generating three-dimensional problem solvers who can perceive, read between the lines, consider options, make decisions, and execute with slick precision. Number three, you've got to take risk. One of the biggest risks any individual or organization can take is not taking any risk. As the old saying goes, a uh, ship is safe in a harbor, but that's not what ships are for. There's no pursuit of excellence that doesn't involve the risk of crippling hurt. Risk is not reckless. It's a calculated dance, and it's where some of your most exhilarating breakthrough moments will be born from. It's one of the most valuable forms of leverage there is outside of time and money. The more risk you can handle and the better you can calculate risk, the steeper your development trajectory will be. It activates your psychological firepower and expands your potential. Like most things, taking risk is a skill. Obviously, you should inoculate against the risk through progressive exposure to it in training or through your development pathway. Broadly speaking, you want to be spending as much time as possible in what we call the adaptive zone. In the adaptive zone, you should be sat upright, mouth wide open, hands clasped, raising your eyebrows, squinting your eyes. Your eyes should literally be burning holes through anything placed in front of them. You should feel your heart pound, your mind churn as you're forced to summon solutions. If you're feeling too comfortable, you're going through the motions, then you're not getting better and you need to dial up the risk somehow. It's only when you increase the demands placed upon you beyond your current abilities, risking failure, that you create a performance gap. And it's the exposure to this gap that sparks your brain and body to adapt to that higher level. I'm a founding partner of a derivatives trading house. And one of the ways we align with this principle is with our aspiring traders. Very often, they're going to struggle with the idea of risk-taking in the form of making large bets with capital at risk. What do we do? We set a minimum bet size. There's a point in time where we have to make it compulsory to place a trade of a certain size. And it goes something like this. You have three hours to get long or short, $500,000, or you're out of the program. Now, this constraint forces the trader to reconcile what's holding them back and find a way to overcome that obstacle. Some have to confront the fear. Some, the fact they weren't prepared enough, they need to go and get prepared. Some have to divest some of the comfort they're unconsciously seeking. And of course, others have to existentially reflect on whether the risk-taking involved with becoming an elite trader is for them at all. General Stanley wrote an entire book on risk. It, he perceived it to be that important, and it really is. And I really recommend reading that book. It's absolutely fantastic. Lesson four for me, people that change the world they work really, really hard. Now, that's what General Stanley said in this uh, interview. The perception that commitment to elite performance limits other aspects of your life is nonsense. When the work is enjoyable and taking you where you want to go, there is no sacrifice. It can actually feel really, really liberating to enjoy the here and now and know that it's driving you forward. Training demands and commitments that might appear superhuman to others can feel perfectly balanced and well adjusted to you and I. 
it's entirely possible for you to be happy with a lifestyle that others might perceive as unconventional or extreme. Lesson five, listen. And I'm going to quote General Stanley again here. It took me a long time in my career to say, shut up and listen, because two things happen. First, you get great guidance. And two, you change the relationship. The relationship is one of respect because you're showing them you respect them because you value what they tell you. One of the most basic of all human needs is the need to understand and the need to be understood. When we are listened to, the exchange of information and emotion in that moment generates cohesion, trust, respect, and growth. It requires a lot of patience, putting egos aside and some courage, but the returns are enormous. And if you truly can't tolerate listening to someone, it's almost a perfect acid test that that someone or potentially you is in the wrong team. And one of you needs to be removed from it for that team to be able to flourish. Lesson six, make it competitive, win. Iron sharpens iron. Your development accelerates in competitive, enthusiastic, high effort environments where learning and winning are the aim. Those who think this is unrealistically idealistic need to think again. In elite performance environments, this is the norm. The more advanced the skills and the desire to win of your peers, the more advanced yours will become. You really want to embed yourself in a supportive, collaborative, challenging, but competitive environment if your aim is to optimize your development. Lesson seven, the barometer for success is the team. General Stanley's focus was on being a great leader. And initially, this was all about him. The barometer was, can he stand in front of the mirror, look, him, look at himself in the eye and say whether or not he was the leader he aspired to be or not? Later in his career, he had that breakthrough moment that being a great leader wasn't about him. Now, the barometer for his leadership abilities was holding that mirror up to the unit and deciding whether they're a good organization or not. Lesson eight. Believe in what you're doing. This is absolutely crucial to get right. And it's such an important message. Nobody hates doing anything worse than things that just seem pointless. Uh, that's what General Stanley shared with us. And then he went on to share that if you want to see a military unit fall to pieces, give it nothing to do. The deeper burnout occurs when people start to lose a belief in what they're doing. And I could not agree more. In the counter-terrorist fight that General Stanley led, which lasted over a decade, operators were conducting extremely violent raids with lots of killing on both sides, night after night. When asked by congressional delegates, how long can the guys keep this up? General Stanley's response was the following. Until they think you're not serious until they think that we're not going to prosecute operations as you've described. If they think they're doing something that has no end or no conviction by the government, they won't be able to continue. They exist because they believe that you're serious. Then General Stanley shares the spear analogy, which I think is really profound and ignored by way too many owners, leaders and management teams. And it goes like this. They're the tip of the spear, but the power of the spear comes from the shaft. It comes in the weight that the shaft gives when it's thrown or pushed. All leadership teams need to seriously reflect on this. What are you asking from those you lead 
and serve. The commitment the team brings will be to a large extent proportionate to your belief in the mission you're all on. How serious do they think you are about winning, achieving and solving the problem the team exists to solve? And how does that potentially link to the behaviors you see in that team day in, day out? Lesson nine, dealing with adversity. Now, upon sharing his resignation uh, to President Obama, General Stanley gave some great advice on dealing with adversity. I think it's just invaluable. First up was your past does not equal your future. You might have been an absolute dirtbag that day and you may have done something horrific. That doesn't mean you have to do that tomorrow. That there's such a thing as redemption. The world moves on, realizing that the world doesn't revolve around you, can act like a release valve and that people will largely judge you on what you do in the more recent past. And you'll suddenly realize it's going to be okay. In psychology, we call this impact bias. The beast we fear is generally never nearly as terrifying as we initially thought. The funny thing about any type of failure is it's not until we start to experience it and fail that we realize it's not actually that bad. Your evolutionary programming designed to keep you alive tends to overestimate how bad things are. Consequently, you fear negative events more than you probably should. I'm not saying that failing doesn't hurt. It does. There's nothing fun about failure, nor am I saying that we should aim to fail. That would be idiotic. The message is that it's way less painful than you think. And more importantly, you are built to compete, to take on challenges and deal with the inevitable hits that come with failure. You're the product of millions of years of evolution and you have this inbuilt ability to recover from trauma. It's hardwired into your DNA. In the same way, your physical immunity depends on exposure to germs, viruses and bacteria. This also happens on a psychological level. When you put in the effort, you take a risk and you fail, you also start to build immunity to the fear of failure. Your psychological immune system kicks in. Taking on a challenge and exposing yourself to fear is how you strengthen your psychological immune system and how you actually forge confidence. You have to learn to fail and trust in your psychological immune system to get over it. Strengthening your psychological immune system doesn't mean you never get sick, but it means you get sick way less and recover quicker. General Stanley, I want to say an enormous thank you. You've been such an inspiring figure to me throughout my career. I wish you the absolute best, sir, and hopefully see you in London soon.